this is the best breakup I've ever had or something like that at the end of the conversation. And I kind of felt like, oh, so, so that's what it looks like when you actually are open and vulnerable and share and, and don't just try to skate past issues. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Men, fan favorite girl talk. I'm really happy that we're doing this episode. I've been wanting to do this topic for quite a long time because I really believe that it's one of the most important relationship skills that you can have that most of us don't learn. So um, we're talking about repair conversations today, and I am pleased to have back Violet and Amber and Ivy. Ladies, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. Delighted to be here. Okay, so we're going to start like normal. So we'll just go around and say our names, our rough ages, our relationship status, zero to 10, and a wildcard question, which is, you know, we can't really travel very much right now, but if you were going to take any trip you wanted anywhere in the world, where would you go? Anyone can start. I'll start. Uh, I'm Ivy. Um, I always say I'm over 40 because I'm old enough to just say that I'm over 40. Um, And... (laughs) Um, relationship status. That's always such a hard one. Um, I guess a happy two. I guess the most important relationship status is that you're happy with whatever your number is. Um, and wildcard question, where would I travel if I could travel anywhere? Um, that's a great question. The first thing that popped into my mind was Paris, but where I'd really like to go right now because it's hot is I'd like to be able to go to maybe, um, you know, a beach in Paris or in France somewhere, maybe the south of France on the coast, uh, Nice probably, uh, and enjoy myself, relax, just sit in the sun, enjoy the Mediterranean, have a couple of great drinks and just let all my cares float away in the, in the salt water. Love it. Thank you. This is Amber. Um, in terms of relationship, I would place myself about an eight. Um, just moved in with the boyfriend and adopted kittens, which we're very excited about. Um, in terms of where I'd like to go right now, I always have a very, very, very long bucket list of places to travel. Um, Colombia has been on my mind lately. I haven't been to South America um, in, in a few years um, and would love to explore more. Um, I'd also just take an exact copy of, of Ivy's plans. That sounds really lovely as well. That's great. (laughs) Group trip. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, and I forgot I'm in my late 30s. Hi, I'm Violet and I am turning 40 in about a week. And my relationship number, I would say is a 10. We just had a baby a few months ago. And ironically, the pandemic has brought us even closer. Like I'm just feeling a lot of love and ease, which hasn't always been the case in our relationships. So I'm the ease part, not the love part. (laughs) And 
The place I'd like to go is actually Bali. I've never been there. And I think because I live in LA and it's so dry here, I'm craving lush, like jungle, tropical fruits, uh, just the humidity like on your skin. Yeah. Love it. Yes. Um, thank you. I'm Mel. I'm in my late thirties relationship status too. And, um, I would say that, uh, where I would really like to go is, um, actually Alaska. (laughs) I've always wanted to do a road trip through Alaska and that's my, my fantasy is to do that with my nan. So that's a bucket list item for me. Um, but it would require me to meet my man first. So it's, it's, uh, it's okay if I put that off for a little bit, little bit till he arrives. Um, okay. So we are talking about repair conversations today, which, um, in modern parlance, I think we often will say conflict resolution. I personally like repair conversations better or repair because it, it sort of emphasizes the restorative function of actually repairing some damage that's been done. And I think there's, it, it feels like a more positive aspiration than conflict resolution. So um, what I'd like to do is actually start by going around and hearing what was repair like in your family of origin? What did repair look like when you were growing up? Because I think a lot of us didn't necessarily learn how to do it. And we get into relationships and, you know, it's a skill that we don't often think about as explicitly something we learned growing up. So I kind of want to name and have us sort of talk about what, what that looked like in your family of origin. So um, anyone can start. What was repair like in your house? I'll start again. Um, in my house, I'd say it was, I guess the best way to describe it was maybe polarizing. So there were times where it was really loving and you felt heard and then there were times it was just volatile. And, and out of that came the loving conversation. But the initial conversation was more reactive than loving. I don't know that people intended to have them, but that's, that was the end result of that they ended up being a repair conversation. So it was either intentionally intentional and loving or volatile and then kind of ended up having a byproduct, the byproduct of, of it ending up being a repair conversation. Thank you. I'll go. This is Violet. I noticed in my upbringing, which in hindsight, I didn't know when I was really young, that a lot of the repair involved my mom placating my dad. So my dad tended to be upset often, and there was a lot of rupture but the repair always came from my mom apologizing or making herself wrong or doing anything she could to keep the peace. I literally never remember my entire life. My dad ever apologizing. His tactic would be to just really pull back and be super aloof and cold for two or three days until my mom finally caved and apologized for something she didn't even do wrong. So there wasn't a lot of repair that I witnessed in healthy ways, I think between my parents. And then in terms of my relationship, again, it's not like my dad was ever trying to repair with me. My mom would try to do the repair for him, like pull me aside and be like, I don't know why he's upset at you. Like he's just going through a tough time and making all these excuses, but then it created some really weird triangulation and it was hard for me to respect my mom. So yeah, repair was not something I really learned in my family. Thank you. This is Amber. Um, My family is, uh, we're all very close, very loving, uh, but very passive. Um, So I think 
when it comes to repair conversations or honestly any serious conversations, the model is pretty much either just, you know, hold it in or hold it in until you explode. And then finally you might have a conversation about it. Um, but obviously it, it's always harder to have, have a, a growing, you know, a conversation that's actually productive when you've waited till that point. Um, and it's, I, I honestly feel awkward even saying that because I feel like it's saying something really negative about family members that I'm of course close to and love. Um, but the fact of the matter is that's, that's how it's always been is that, um, we don't, we don't necessarily address issues. We don't confront, um, I've tried to kind of move the needle on that a bit and sometimes been successful, um, but definitely much more so as an adult than growing up. I was uh, muted, but I laughed when you said either we hold it in or we hold it in until we explode, because I think that's a common model. I think many, many family systems would be able to relate to that as a, as a thing. Um, So I appreciated that. (laughs) And, um, And I would say that for me, uh, similar to you, Violet, uh, repair in my house, um, I grew, I'm just going to talk about my relationship with my mom because I, she was my primary caregiver and I was, I lived with her for all of my school years. And then I was with my dad for summer. Um, but my like repair in my house was anytime my mom was upset, whether that was justified or not. I had to grovel and beg for forgiveness and that's what repair looked like. So there was never meeting halfway. It was kind of like what you said, Violet, of like placating, placating mom. And the, um, the way that it would show up in terms of the conflict would be either she would be yelling and, and visibly upset, or she would be giving me the silent treatment. So if I was a little bit late, for example, when she was picking up at school, she would give me the silent treatment for like 45 minutes in the car on the way home. And the strategy there was for me to just be quiet and just hope that it would be done. Um, Or I could do things like clean or do, do something to like fight for forgiveness basically. So it was like a, a very, very similar dynamic of like, there was never a time that she met me halfway, um, which it sounds like was similar in your family of, uh, there was never a time that your dad was like, Oh, I'm sorry. Like I overreacted to that or I shouldn't have said that to you or, you know, I apologize was never part of the, my experience of repair growing up. So, um, now we're going to, um, shift gears a little bit and talk about, uh, a time that a repair conversation didn't go well for you. And then a time that repair did go well for you. And, um, if we can think of romantic relationships, that would be helpful, but I kind of want to keep it open to whatever your intuition brings to you in this conversation. So if it is a romantic partner, great. If it's some other scenario, that's also totally, totally great because I, I believe that we learn repair with our friends, with our family members, with our romantic partners and and that we can use all those places as grounds to, to learn how to do repair well and to become skillful with it. Um, and I'll just put this out there. It feels to me like a lot of people just sort of avoid repair or, and, and then, and then in a romantic relation, it's kind of relationship, it's kind of inevitable that you will need that skill. And so we're less prepared once we get there 
than if we were practicing in other arenas. So uh, a time repair did not go well for you. Anyone can start. I'll start. This is Violet. I remember a time in 2018 in the fall where I had gotten upset with my partner. I had brought some complaints to him, I guess I'll just say. And he reacted, he got pretty angry. And in that anger, it got heated really quickly. And I was having a hard time repairing because I felt very justified in my complaints. And in hindsight, I think I could have been more humble and I could have focused on our relationship and just instead of just focusing on like my grievances. And I remember feeling really annoyed by, by his reaction, but I think it was probably a trigger from my dad and how my dad never apologized and was always really volatile, kind of projected that onto my partner thinking like, why isn't he just agreeing with all of my (laughs) grievances? Um, So we had been seeing a therapist for about almost a year at that point. And it helped because she was able to help us repair it. We just weren't able to repair on our own. And she was also helpful in reflecting back to me as painful it was as, as it was at the time that sometimes I get kind of self-righteous. And I think that prevents me from really showing up with a positive intention for repair, not just confirming that I'm right. Yeah. Well said. I, I like that last part cause it feels, uh, like an important part of, of like, well, I'm right. I should be, <laughs> I should be seen in my rightness versus what's best for this connection. This is Ivy. I'll go next. And, and I'm really trying to think about this. There's not a series of, of conversations that went well or right. Um, ones that went bad were with my, my former husband, my daughter's dad. And, um, or ones that, I guess went right and wrong. There's, there's a ton of them. It's a rich tapestry there. Um, but I guess, uh, not any one conversation comes to mind, but it was a pervasive, uh, way of being we had with each other of really not getting the other's perspective because the truth was, I think, is we were really unwilling to be vulnerable enough to share it. There's, there's something, um, I guess, about repair conversations that takes a level of vulnerability that is really hard for people to get to. Usually they come to the conversation with fixing or make wrong or getting past something or I really just want my partner to know how much this irritates or hurt me or, or, or something in that. But to you guys' earlier points, you ladies' earlier points, there's some self-righteousness in there. And I, the more I think about like ways in which, you know, any of the conversations we had went wrong, it was just this being unwilling to really be vulnerable and let him see the hurt and the pain and the impact without make wrong, like just having him really see me because it was already hard. I already felt, you know, hurt and betrayed and all of that type of thing. So yeah, it just, I just, I don't recall any one in particular, but I can just remember numerous times when you feel like I just tried, I tried, I tried so hard to share my real self. And I, I just don't think I either could get there or I got there and he couldn't see me because it was all felt cloaked in my righteousness or make wrong. And so we just couldn't have a a, a real connection around it. 
Yeah, thank you for speaking to that, especially that the vulnerability aspect, because I, I think that feels, like you said, like a critical part of genuine repair. Like I felt hurt or I felt left out or I felt dropped instead of like, well, when you're late, it doesn't make me feel like you care or, you know, like the, the sort of self-righteous part of I'm right about this. You shouldn't be late. You should just not be late instead of it kind of impact. Exactly. Exactly. Like it's all cloaked in, it's all cloaked in that. It's like, you know, you don't get to the creamy nougat, I guess. <laughs> you don't get to the really good stuff until you get past all that. And it's hard because a lot of times our first reaction is just that initial hurt. You know, you, I can't believe you're late again. Like, and that's Absolutely. where you start. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Plus, plus one on, on the vulnerability point. I think that's something that I really had to learn is that you can be a good communicator in other circumstances. You know, like I've never had a teacher tell me that I was a bad communicator. That's the strength of mine. But when it comes to communicating in relationships, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship, it's not the same and it may not come naturally and easily. You have to be vulnerable. You also have to be open to how the other person reacts. And it may not be what you expect. You may not like it. You may not appreciate it. And I think part of learning to have these types of conversations well is adjusting and learning and growing together, whether, you know, whether it's in a relationship or with friends and figuring out that, that the way they approach a conversation, the way they react can be wildly different. Um, it's funny because I, I hadn't thought of this before we started talking, but, um, because we started talking about family, I'll, I'll give a, a quick example of a, of a family repair conversation that, that didn't necessarily work well, which was um, on Last Girl Talk, I actually talked about uh, my experience as, as uh, a multiracial person traveling with the white side of my family and feeling like uh, they just were not having the same experience. And specifically, there was a trip to Italy where I was basically in a bad mood a lot of the time because of it, but I wasn't vulnerable enough to express that to them. And afterwards, I wrote this whole letter about it. And it, it way I think it was good it was cathartic but I never I never brought it up with them I never talked through in sort of an in-depth and meaningful way it ended up coming up sort of in bits and pieces but I didn't have the conversation I should have had um in terms of a conversation that wouldn't go well similar to Ivy I feel like there's so many um that it's hard for me to think of one standout um but I think uh, when I think of, I had, I had an ex who I was friends with for a long time. We were friends, um, since college. And then we dated for about three years and our communication was just so broken. Not only was I adopting that passive model of just, you know, it'll go away. Um, but I also just didn't ask or, or confront basic things. So for example, he had a, a lot of issues with his, with his mother in terms of how they got along. And, um, at one point they basically had a, had a rupture. And I knew, um, that if, if he didn't, you know, kind of speak to her and get through it, that it would probably be something that would be serious and lasting. And I tried to talk to him about it. And, um, I don't know if it was my approach or his approach or his openness, but it did not go well. It basically just ended up with him kind of lumping me sort of a, you're on her side kind of thing. And it was really, it was a bit heartbreaking because I, 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 I felt like if I had just approached it better, if I had somehow, you know, made the conversation move forward in a more meaningful way that I could have had, had a, had a different impact. And I didn't, and I felt like it was a failure on my part. Thank you for, for speaking to that. And, um, it's, uh, you know, what, 
what came to me in the first story about the letter was not feeling met. I actually wasn't clear. Did you send the letter or did you just write it cathartically? No, no, just wrote it. And then I wasn't sure. Do I send it? Do I, you know, approach them and have them read it? And then we talk it through. And, you know, I just overthought it and then never did anything with it. Got it. Okay. I thought that you had sent it and got no response. And I felt really, really, really sad hearing that. Um, But I feel a little less sad. Um, I still feel sad because, you know, there's that, like what I hear in that is I'm not sure I'll be met. And, and so it feels really scary to go out on a limb and share my heart and actually like expose this vulnerability, like Ivy's, like to Ivy's point. Um, And so it sounds like what you did was kind of try to sort of do it in dribs and drabs. Uh, a little yep. bit here and there, but not, not like you said in a, in a, okay, I'm, I'm actually sharing my heart now. <laughs> right. This is, a, you know, even just calling the conversation like, Hey, I've got something important I need to share is, is scary. In 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 my experience, just, just that, right. Just bringing up the conversation of like, I need to tell you something is a scary thing. And I think in many cases we, you know, have very little training around that. It's like the, the meme of like, we need to talk is like strikes fear into the heart of every person. Like, oh God, what are they going to say? Am I going to be attacked? Like what's going to happen? You know, it's not like a, you know, fun thing to say. And so then you're like, well, how do I say it? So that it's not scary. And it becomes this whole, this whole thing. So maybe we can touch on that in the repair conversations that did go well. Um, so um, my story is uh, with an ex-boyfriend of mine that I was seeing. We, we were together for a long time. So we by this point, we'd probably been together for at least a year, maybe a year and a half. And um, I was, I was, there was something about he was going to give me a ride and then he didn't, or I don't remember the details of it, but I remember that I was, I was upset. I was mad at him. And so I was kind of short in like some text messages or something. Um, and then I actually called him on the phone. I remember he was in the car. I called him on the phone and I said, um, I'm sorry. I was short. I feel like I was trying to punish you because I was kind of mad because I felt left out that, you know, you didn't pick me up or whatever the grievance was, as Violet said. Um, and I, I was like really trying, right? Like I really was like, admitted this thing that I was like, I was trying to punish you or like make you feel bad. And I'm sorry. And, um, I remember he said something like, "Uh uh-huh. And that was like it, there was no, uh, acknowledgement. Um, and that was a really hard thing for me to say and actually like speak aloud and share. And I was really trying to like reach out and, um, make myself vulnerable and I think that was a great microcosm of, of that relationship. Like I felt like I really, really, you know, tried to share my heart repeatedly and was repeatedly like not met in that. And when we broke up, interestingly, um, he wrote me this like seven or eight page letter, like a very long letter. And in it, he said, you were trying the whole time. I saw you trying the whole time and I never like really gave you what you needed or I don't remember how he phrased it, but I felt really seen in that moment, like, and just validated and like, okay, yeah, that experience I was having, that was real. That wasn't just me thinking I was trying to do this thing. And it, and I wasn't, it was like, he was like, yeah, you were really trying. Like I saw you really trying and, 
I felt, I felt met in that, but it was sort of like, well, too little, too late, right? Like I broke up with him in large part because I didn't feel emotionally safe. And, and these moments, I think the, the rupture and repair moments to me are a lot of where emotional safety lives. Yes, definitely. I hear you on that. I mean, I, you know, as I, as I think back over, um, the relationship, I, now I, I discovered a specific example. Um, but even when there was a rupture and there might've been a repair in terms of a validation after the fact, it, it's sometimes it's still, it falls short of, of actual repair. It actually just kind of is more validating of like, yeah, that's why this relationship isn't that or what it was or what, what I wanted it to be, because it's just not like, I'm just, I, I won't be met because that's who the person is and that's who I am and not in a bad way. I think it just reveals it itself in that way. Um, and the specific instance I'm thinking about is a co-parenting issue that we had around um, with my daughter's dad and her, her, him, her, him introducing her to women he was dating. And we sort of had a double standard. And I think because there is more safety and surety in society with women meeting children than with men meeting children, and especially with men meeting girl children um, in particular. And I know that he, that was a particular fear of his, but we had one rule was that, hey, you got to run it by the other parent, or at least let the other parent know that that's going on. Um, and then that rule got broken. But by then, the other, the other piece of that is when I tried to have a repair conversation, I don't know that I was so mad about the woman's introduction, I mean, like, or like I felt threatened by that. It was just that he didn't keep his word around it. It really irritated me. And I know that had the situation been reversed, all hell would have broken loose in that other scenario. He would have just lost it as he had, you know, previously before. He's very protective of her. And so anyway, it, it didn't go well. Um, and then we had to repair the repair conversation and that went a lot better. Um, but I just remember it still was, there was still something there cause it like, it showed up again in a different way, in a different form, like a few months later. And I just really kind of got that like, yeah, this is where we are now. And that I have to think of something different to feel safe with regard to this issue because I'm not going to be met or heard or whatever. And, and I was just unwilling at that particular point to con continue coming at it from different angles because that was equally frustrating as well for me. So sometimes it's just accepting that like, yeah, that's just where they are. So what do I need to be safe or, or feel okay? And then ask or, for or make a powerful request around that so that that is at least from that perspective is met and that you can move forward. Because you just can't hang out there forever. Yeah, what I hear in that is boundaries, healthy boundaries. Because if we if we do show our heart and are not met repeatedly, you know, that's kind of an indication that we need a boundary, right? Because it's up to us, I think, as responsible adults, to be tracking our own self care and our own our own hearts and and taking steps to protect them. Because, um, you know, I. I established boundaries around my mom because I was like, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't working. This doesn't, this hurts me. Like the way that, you know, the way that this goes is not good for me. And so I put boundaries around it. And I think that's a big, um, a big part of it because 
you know, kind of to your point, Ivy, it's like, just because you have a repair conversation doesn't mean it works. Right. But you, but if you're going to try to do a responsible relationship, you got to try. So you, you try and then you see how you feel it. Do you feel met? Do you feel heard? All of those things. And then if you don't, like you said, you got to make another plan. And sometimes that involves some kind of boundaries, whether it's physical or emotional. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to make space if um, Violet or Amber have any other comments about that part. Feeling like, feeling like no comments. I guess I just want to add that to, to add on to what you were saying about self-awareness and boundaries and also what Ivy said about relationships. Sometimes it's just not, it's illuminating that this isn't the right relationship. I think the attempt at repair is beautiful. And then if it doesn't repair, recognizing, okay, we can keep trying, we can get some outside support or we can keep doing the thing that we're doing. Um, or we can recognize that there's something fundamental that's hard to get both of our nervous systems to feel relaxed after we've gone through something intense or gone through a trauma together. I have definitely been in situations where I pretended that the repair happened and that I was cool, but I wasn't really cool. And, um, I think it takes a lot of courage to continue to advocate for your own needs and not just say, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to settle for this level of repair, even though it doesn't actually yet feel good in my body. Yeah, I, I agree with everything everyone has said. I think, Violet, what, what you just said speaks to me too, in terms of like, the other person has to has to meet you, right? So it's similar to, to what Mel was saying earlier, that yeah, if you're if you're not met, if you don't feel like what you're sharing is actually being understood and listened to and it's sinking in, then it, it just, it makes it impossible, frankly, to, to actually move forward. Yeah. Like when I think back on, on that conversation I had with my ex, I really didn't need something elaborate. I kind of just needed him to be like, oh, thank you for telling me that. Like, that was really brave. I really appreciate, you know, that you said that. And I do care about you. Like, that's pretty much it. I didn't, like, I didn't need a whole song and dance. I just needed to feel like my heart was held and my vulnerability was held. And it was, it was safe for me to express that and be seen in, in that. Cause it, to me, it's like, for me to say, like, I kind of wanted to punish you. And that's why I was short. Like I'm exposing like my shame, which is like, I hold shame around being a bitch or like being mean. And so it felt really risky for me to say that. And then to be met kind of with like an emotional wall was sort of like felt almost like even worse than if I hadn't exposed myself. And I think that's a good example of like a repair conversation can, there's a way it can strengthen the relationship or it can expose the real weaknesses of it, right? The cracks or like the places where it's not actually that sound and so, yeah, I, I appreciated what you said, Violet, about how do you feel in your body, right? After a pair conversation, do you still feel squirrely in your stomach? Do you still feel kind of like, yeah, I don't really feel good. Or do you feel like, you know, relaxed in your nervous system? Do you feel like a weight's been lifted off you, right? Like a sense of relief. You know, I feel in, in my body, which we're moving into now, times repair did go well, there's a def, there's a definitive feeling I've had in my body repeatedly when repair does go well, where I just feel like, ah, uh, like, oof, like I put down a big, heavy sack of, of, you know, grief 
and I, I feel lighter. I feel better. I feel more connected to this person. I feel expressed. I feel loved, you know, whether or not it's a romantic relationship. So I think that that feels like an important element in the discussion is like the physicality of, of, of repair. So we're going to start, yeah, moving into stories of a time that a repair conversation did go well for you, uh, whether that's romantic or not. And, and anyone can start. I have uh, two examples that I would love to just briefly share because the first is an example of where we repaired, but it was really hard for me and intense for me. And the second, what felt a lot more connected. So the outcome was the same, but the, the process and the feeling was different. So the first one was, wow, like a long, a few years ago when my husband and I had just moved in together and we were figuring out that dance of just moving in together and like, how much time do you spend and how do you not step on each other's toes? And I'm a coach and I got too coachy with him. I was like, what do we want to create today? And he was having to do a lot of work and I didn't realize that he needed to get work done that day. And he was like, um, I just need some space, but it really offended me because I felt we were in this honeymoon phase and I didn't recognize just some of the masculine feminine dynamics going on in our partnership. And I felt really shut down. So I basically left the house and I went to a museum and I was pouting and I was just basically waiting until he texted me in order to go home, which wasn't until like eight hours later. (laughs) So when I got home, I was kind of cold and aloof. And then after, I don't know, some time, he started asking me about my day and I started warming up. So we repaired, but it was kind of an inadvertent repair. And I was really stressed during the time of taking that space, even though I knew that he just needed his space. I kind of took it a little too far, maybe vindictively, like punishing him by staying away so long. And then he was like, I missed you. And anyway, his, his affection helped us repair, but I wouldn't classify it as like the best repair. And then in a, a different example that was probably healthier and more intentional was that last fall, um, something happened that, that came up for us. And I felt like something was off and he said, no, no, you know, it's fine. And I was like, well, I'm going to sleep in the other room because something just still feels off in my body. And then he came out a little bit later and was like, yeah, we need to talk about this thing. And what really helped is that he apologized and I stayed connected to my body, but I also wasn't trying to punish him. I was just more trying to understand like, why did, why did this come up and um, what do you need? And so his apology and me staying connected to my body and being in a more grounded place, he even said, he's like, Whoa, you're not throwing the grenade, which is our phrase for when I get really upset and like lob my feelings at him or, or get in that self-righteous place. So I'm kind of rambling, but that was really helpful within an hour. We kind of gotten, got to a much healthier place. And then he was also like, well, what do I need to do so that this doesn't happen again? And so he was thinking about the future in a positive way. And I was also thinking, you know, was I being too harsh? Like what was really coming up for me? Was I trying to control him and what was my fear? So we were just both more reflective and more resourced. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's interesting. The first example that you gave, I think, um, feels common to me of like, there's a, there's a conflict and then you don't really talk about it, but you kind of like one person's affectionate or you just kind of move on. And that's kind of a question mark for me around, um, 
emotional safety, because on the one hand, it's like, oh God, do we really have to talk about every single little thing? Um, but on the other hand, I think it's significant that what you said was you felt better in your body the second, the sec- in the second version, right? Because I'm imagining partly because it was actually addressed, like the thing that was in the room was actually addressed and you both were able to share and feel heard uh, versus just kind of moving on. So I'm curious to just hear, just to hear from you, you know, cause I imagine there's little things that happen in your relationship. Do you find that there's a balance between those two? That's a great question because definitely in the first example I gave, I felt like I had to leave the relationship. I mean, not really leaving it, but like leave the home for the day in order to give him space. And then I got to return to the relationship. But in the second example, I never left myself and I also never left the relationship. It was never, you know, to that, to that point. So I think we've, we've just created more skill now over time and with getting external support and both doing our work to bring things up and feel safe in bringing things up. And then also to give each other the grace of a him apologizing and saying, okay, what can I do differently in the future? Which he didn't always do in the beginning of the relationship. I was just like sitting with my trigger and he'd hold space, but he wouldn't necessarily take responsibility in, in the discussion or the outcome or the plan. So that's really helped from his standpoint and his engagement. And then the other thing that's helped for me is just, like I said, being more grounded and being more connected to myself so that I can bring things up sooner before they get too big. So that I can also just recognize that I'm kind of a lot sometimes and I can't always expect him to be in the same energy state or the same engagement level. Like I'm better at giving him space and reading his needs more and and asking him about his needs more and not taking it personally. And then also just staying more committed. Something I used to do is be like, well, then this just isn't going to work. Or like I would make these big claims because I was scared and I was trying to flee, even though I wasn't actually leaving. I was like predicting the worst about the relationship. So I've learned how toxic that is and try not to do that anymore because then both of us are kind of giving up. So staying committed, staying open, staying aware and bringing things up in a bit of a lighter way versus a self-righteous way. Nice. Yeah, definitely hear that. I think uh, psychologists call it threatening the relationship (laughs) or lobbing the grenade. I love that. Uh, this is, this is Amber. I'll go. Um, oddly (laughs) my, the example that came to mind first when I thought about a good repair relationship was a breakup. Um, and I know that's a little bit odd, but it was one of the most kind of open vulnerable conversations we'd ever had. This was a boyfriend quite a few years back. We, um, worked together and, and he was older and made more money. And there were definitely some cultural differences that made it difficult. And I really liked him as a person. Um, but I find, I found that I discovered a few months into our relationship that romantically, I just didn't feel like it was a fit. And I think I was a little bit in denial about it because he was just really sweet and lovely and treated me well. Um, and we actually went to a wedding of a friend of his together. Um, and I remember just feeling just completely distant from him and, um, you know, realizing that we needed to break up, but probably on the trip wasn't the time to do so. Um, which obviously also just creates a whole awkward, you know, um, dimension when, when you're thinking about, okay, it's done and the 
person doesn't know that yet. Um, but anyway, we ended up breaking up about a week later. We were walking. It was on a pier somewhere in New York. And I said, you know, I just have to talk to you. And I think I started crying like immediately. And and I'm not a big crier. And I, honestly, I'm not sure if I'd ever cried with him. Um, and but I explained how I was feeling and, and he was really sad and, but he was also really surprised because there were a lot of feelings that I hadn't shared with him. Um, but the reason that I remember it fondly is one, it was, it was, you know, an emotional relief to be able to get that out and, and, and talk about it. But we also talked about how he felt about what I was saying and if he had similar feelings in some way. And I remember him saying something like, well, this is the best breakup I've ever had or something like that at the end of the conversation. And I kind of felt like, Oh, so, so that's what it looks like when you actually are open and vulnerable and share and, and don't just try to skate past issues. That's sweet. It reminds me of a, a film called breaking upwards, which I haven't actually watched, but is, is about sort of, you know, conscious uncoupling is another term for like trying to grow through a breakup mm-hmm. instead of like, you know, this volatile, crazy, dramatic rupture that I think we often see in, um, you know, film and TV and, and places that like to dramatize things. Right. Um, so yeah, that's a very sweet moment that this is the best breakup I've ever had. I think that's one of my strong areas because a lot of my quote unquote, for lack of a better term, breakup conversations actually go really, really well. Cause I <laughs> I don't know if I want that to be my claim to fame, but um, anyway, they they do seem to go really, really well. But um, uh, one of the ones that really went well, uh, you know, again, is, 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 um, you know, my daughter's dad. And I think we had been tripping and stepping and falling all over what happened. Um, And then finally I, I called him and I just said, you know, I pretend and that's how it started. And, but it's not true. And I think it's time that we just acknowledge, like, what so? And we did. And we both did. And it was, you know, it, it and, and that process took like several days because it was us talking about, we've been together for a very long time and we have a child together. So it, it took some time to unpack, but we did unpack it all. Um, and we were better for it afterwards. And the beauty of that is once all of that was unpacked, I think it really solidified the new focus of our relationship, which became the well-being of our daughter. And that became the highest ideal that we held each other accountable for, is that it really is about her and the degree to which we are happy and supportive as individuals, she will be happy and feel supported um, uh, to what, to your point, Mel, is like safe and secure within a family unit. Even though we have two separate households, she won't feel like it's two separate households. She'll feel like this is kind of the way it is. And, and that's how she grew up. She actually didn't realize. I remember one day, like she kind of had an epiphany that we were divorced But that's because in the moment, once everything was unpacked, there was space to create something new, not on top of all this old stuff, but like there's this beautiful clearing. And so what do we want now with each other, given that we do have something in common that we love, cherish, and adore very much, and that's our daughter. And so what do we want in the space of that? 
and it, it gave way to that. And I think that's the ideal that we've, we've kind of held out throughout our co-parenting relationship uh, all the way up to her growing up. And she's now graduated, you know, high school and we're still, you know, have a great relationship, still good friends, still call each other, still check on each other, still are concerned about and support each other's well-being. Because at the end of the day, there's somebody that we both love, cherish, and adore, and her well-being is important and is still dependent on our well-being. And so we're, we're staying for that with each other. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I, I think that's one of the things I've admired the most about about you personally over the years is watching you co-parent her and the, um, again, like they're just, it feels like there are a lot of models out there of it not working and being difficult and contentious. And it's been a joy to watch a family system that feels healthy where, you know, things are addressed. Like you said, um, even if it's not perfect, it's like you didn't sweep it under the rug, you know, with the, with the, the woman that was introduced kind of thing, like you addressed it and there's, you know, space for that in, in your relationship. And, you know, your daughter is witnessing that, that kind of thing. Like, Oh, this is a thing that adults can do. Like, (laughs) this is a thing that is possible instead of kind of like some of what we talked about in the beginning of the call of what, what repair didn't look like in certain people's homes, which I would argue most people's homes do not have healthy repair conversations as a part of the um, experience, just based anecdotally on what I've seen and my French groups and reading books and everything. It's like, that's actually more rare than, you know, healthy dynamics where things are brought up, people are heard, everyone knows how to be vulnerable and feel met. Like that's more rare than, than not. Yeah. And I would say, um, to, to that point, that was one of the things I think that we, 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 we both grew up where, you know, I'm a product of divorce and his parents were never really married, but they had a very tumultuous relationship. And I think one of our kind of commitments to each other and to our daughter was no repeat of that. Like whatever that, whatever it looked like for me and whatever it looked like for him, we don't want any of that in this new construct. And, and so we worked really hard and I mean, you know, cause it's easy to go there. It's what, you know, it's what's familiar, but we worked really hard to try to chew ourselves up and even call each other out on when we were like, kind of, you know, falling back onto that. Cause that's not who we wanted to be not for ourselves and certainly not for her. Yeah. And it's, it's a, a beautiful mutual common goal is raising a healthy human. <laughs> um, So mine is a a recent repair conversation that I had um, with a guy I was seeing. And um, we had a conversation where I got really triggered. um, But I've, and I've rarely had this experience, but basically um, he said something that hurt my feelings during the call that we were on, but I didn't realize how deeply hurt I was until like hours later. It was kind of like a, like a, an emotional landmine, but like it hit me after the call, like on the call, I could feel, I could feel it in my body. Like I could feel in my stomach. I was like, Ooh, ah, that hurt. But logically I didn't really know why. And so I, I totally like held it together on the call and everything. And anyways, so I get off the call, 
I feel pretty hurt. I take a few days to process. And then um, we had a repair conversation and I was like, I felt, yeah, I just felt really like uh, hurt by this comment. I felt like not kind of like valued or seen or, or anything. And he was so uh, receptive and really just took responsibility. He was like, this is a, this has been a pattern for me. I have overshared in the past and hurt people and I'm sorry. And I just felt really, um, I felt really met. I felt seen. I felt like he had a lot of space for, for what I was bringing. Whereas I think with my ex-boyfriend, I felt like immediately stonewalled or shut out, or he would get defensive and just push me away. Like just physically, it felt like he would just slam a door in my face. And this was much more like, he was like opening the door and bringing me into the living room and being like, sit down. I have some coffee for you. Like I'm totally here for this. And, um, yeah, I just felt really, I felt really met. And the impact of that was that I felt a lot safer to, um, you know, step towards relationship with him. Cause I was like, okay, well this feels like this feels safe. And at the same time, I was also holding the hurt right? Like it didn't all disappear in the course of that conversation. It was like this dual thing I was holding. And then it took a few more days for me to kind of metabolize the depth of that, if that makes sense. So I think, you know, there's something, there's something important about that um, too, that I think when you're physically in person with someone, it can be sped up with physical affection, but this was over Zoom. Like we had our repair conversation over Zoom, um, so that's something I reflect on in terms of just in terms of the practical ways that couples can repair. It feels like physical holding or affection or or something after a repair conversation can help solidify the felt sense of safety in your body and and how that can kind of um, yeah just just help with the nervous system calming down. You make a really good point there, Mel, because I think for you know, video is probably, you know, I guess the next best thing to being there in person and which is better than phone, which I guess is better than letter, but there's something about being in person that lends itself to the, 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 all of the dimensions of your humanity. And I think when people are often present to that, it, it definitely allows you to, I love that you use the word metabolize the healing process better. If obviously if the conversation is going well, and even if the conversation doesn't go well, go well, I think it also lends itself to you getting complete in some other way, because you kind of get to say, yeah, I mean, I kind of brought it and they didn't receive it. And I could see physically like they weren't taking it in for their own reasons, not like you did something wrong or, or bad or whatever. I, I think that dimension of in-person um, connection or conversing really does lend itself to speeding something up, enhancing something, allow people to see something that they can't really get when it's either over the phone or even in video. And I think video is great. I mean, when you can, you know, if you can't get to the phone, I think video is great. But when you're in person, I think it really does allow for you to really feel um, as well as be fully witnessed in all your humanity right there up close and personal. Yeah. Any other ladies want to comment on this section? 
I just appreciate your share and Ivy's share because they're, I'm taking it for granted that all the repair conversations with my husband, there was eye contact, there was touch, there was proximity, there was um, ease because we were in our own home. And I'm thinking about the times when we have had a hard time repairing, we're not making eye contact, we're not touching. It's just such an important part of it with our nervous system. Yeah. And I know there are couples, psychologists who recommend physically holding each other, like uh, not in a sexual way, but straddling each other and looking into each other's eyes and like fighting that way, like physically being that close and intimate as you're sharing, um, which I've never tried. And I, I feel a little bit skeptical about, but I do think that there's a lot of wisdom around, you know, physical touch and, and, and signaling safety, right. Physical touch that sort of signals like if this has been a safe person for you in the past, this may still be a safe person because mm-hmm. when we're in fight or flight and we're triggered, our body is sending us all kinds of like, this is a dangerous situation. This is a dangerous person. Defend yourself from this person, um, which is going to lead to a certain, you know, kinds of, of comments <laughs> like lobbing the grenade, for example. Um, uh, Amber, have you gone for this prompt? Yeah, I, I did just want to add, though, something that I think is really interesting is is um, when you guys share your experiences thinking about how how I would have reacted or how I would have interacted with those experiences. And for me, it, it kind of takes it back to the point of like couples learning each other. So, for example, the idea of lobbing a grenade, like I would never do that. I'm extremely literal. I'm very, I don't say things that I don't mean. So if you say something and you don't mean it in an argument, it's, it's like hard for me to even comprehend that. And I also have this expectation that um, because I've explained that, because I've shared that, that it will never happen, which is not realistic because that's not, that's not how people work. Um, so for example, once my, my current boyfriend, we communicate really well together in, in most ways. Um, but um, he's Kenyan and, and grew up speaking Amharic and English. But every now and then he'll say something that I, I think it's partly a translation thing. So one time I was mad at him. I'd been drinking and he said, you're a mean drunk. And I was, and I was so offended because I, I don't think I'm a mean drunk and I felt like I personally feel like if you're if you act a different way drunk it's probably it's probably something to do with your true personality and uh and I think it was both things it's that he expresses himself in a different way he's not quite so literal but it was also a bit of a language thing where I where I explained to him like that means I'm always mean when I'm drunk that means that there's like sort of another side that comes out and he basically said oh I didn't mean it that way at all I just meant you're being mean right now um so anyway, it's, it was just an interesting reflection I was thinking about while you guys were talking. Yeah, I um, I totally empathize with uh, with you, Violet. I think that's something that if I were if I were more expressed uh, when when fighting, um, I would I would say something like that. Like I feel like I would tr- I would trend in that direction. Um, what I find interesting is that I th- I think that. Um, I actually am quite not expressed when I'm actually triggered or upset in the moment. Um, I tend to withdraw more than express because I don't really trust that the person's going to be able to meet me in my full expression of upset. Um, so I'm much less likely to do that in the moment. And I think that's a growth edge because I actually think that being, um, what is it called? Being real time or, or like, 
they call it emotionally current, right? Like actually sharing what's happening in the moment um, is uh, feels risky and edgy to me. And it feels like the thing to shoot for, right? Like it feels like, oh, that's actually the healthiest way to do things rather than um, kind of repressing how I'm actually feeling. And, and of course there's wisdom to going off and processing, but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think because of the limited range that my caregiver had when I was growing up, I didn't, there wasn't space for me to actually be expressed in my upset. And so I think that's a, a, a place to grow into. Um, and I, I would guess that that's true for, for many other people as well, that there's much more of a tendency to like withdraw and go and lick your wounds and, you know, try to get over it yourself and avoid having the conversation and like all the time and energy spent around that rather than like, wow, I'm noticing I'm really, um, I felt really hurt by that. Like what you just said. Yeah, absolutely. I rarely express myself in the moment. I, I think it could go both ways. I don't, I, I do more now than I, I used to. Like I now will just say, hmm, that didn't feel very good. Let me, let me sit with that. Or sometimes I'll, I'll even say, um, yeah, I, I'm triggered. Um, so give me a second. Or I'm totally triggered. So this is what's going on. And, you know, and I can, I can do that. And I do that a lot, uh, probably more with my family. Um, probably especially with my mom. Um, my yeah, probably more so with my mom than my, my sister and my dad, although I do do it with them, but more with my mom. But I think she and I have kind of the same kind of shared language around it. So we get to, with she and I, we come from the same place. It's very okay and safe for us to acknowledge that and kind of talk it through and process and hear where the other person is. Um, you know, I, I don't know that other people would meet me and my family exactly in the same place, but it's not that I can't do it with them. It's, it's, it's a practice. And sometimes it's, I also think, um, I, I guess for myself personally, personally, there's, there's impact on, I'm a very conscious, I guess, communicator. I'm very present to the impact. And I, one of the things I kind of, or try to calculate is what is it you're going to get out of by being emotionally current because if they're not going to meet you if they can't process this it's not going to go well and it doesn't actually elevate your relationship in any way it's actually maybe detrimental so I calculate sometimes who I'm talking with whether or not what's what's the possibilities that are present here and I try not to you know project onto them but I also want to do what serves the both of us um, and elevates the both of us I don't want to just have a conversation and be expressed and then it just spirals downhill from there. And then I have to have multiple repair conversations to try to get back to where we were before I was so expressed without doing enough processing to see where I was really coming from. If it really even had anything to do with what's going on with that person or something deeper going on with me. Yeah. I think that's a great point, especially like I think, uh, my, my understanding is, uh, specifically in romantic relationships where there's a lot of trust built up and this is a partnership. Um, that's sort of a different context. Like you said, with your mom, it sounds like you have a lot of trust built up and some shared language and there's just more availability, uh, in that. Um, and it, it sounds to me like it's kind of an art, right? Cause what you said, like there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I think there's wisdom in, 
me holding back sometimes. Like you said, like, what's going to be the effect? Like, I don't want to go off on this person. Um, but I think I have trended more towards, I'm going to withhold all of my feelings instead of like, there's some kind of balance, I guess. And, and it feels like an art to find that because it's not sort of A equals B. Um, there, there's an art to what I share and when I share it. And um, yeah, I just, I think I tend towards holding things in rather than like expressing when, when it's needed or I have in the past rather. So we're going to start to wrap up here. Um, I guess I would just love to hear like each person's takeaway from this conversation and then kind of any advice you have in terms of, of specifically of men repairing with women that they're in relationship with. I think one thing I'm thinking about is um, the fact that this isn't something that necessarily comes completely naturally. Um, just like a lot of things in life, I think taking time to work on it and to learn it and to grow in it is incredibly important. And also asking questions. So I, uh, I'm, I'm in HR, and one of the things that I that I always tell managers when we're talking about like coaching somebody through, you know, a difficult performance issue is ask them how they like to hear feedback, <laughs> ask them what sinks in the most, um, ask them their opinion on what you've shared. If, you know, for example, um, I've gotten feedback that your communication can be difficult at times, that you, that you speed ahead and it's hard to follow. Ask them what they think about that. And I think that's really true here as well. So, you know, ask your partner. Um, I feel like sometimes you get angry um, and I don't know what to do. What's the best way for me to react in that scenario? How can I make you feel safe and held? Um, is it is it best for me to walk away? Is it best for me to wait till you're ready to talk about it? Um, and that's not to say that you always have to, you know, go with your partner's wishes, but at least understanding what they're looking for is huge. Love that. Thank you. I'll go. I feel like a big takeaway similar to Ivy is that this is hard. <laughs> like real repair, true repair, uh, takes something, takes humility, takes effort, takes skill, takes a regulated nervous system, takes safety. So it's giving me a really deeper appreciation of, of repair and that it's okay to get it wrong, but just to keep trying. And I guess any advice I would have for men that might be listening is to notice when you're getting defensive and not that I blame anyone for getting defensive. I mean, it's like Mel said, when someone says we need to talk, like, of course we're going to be on the back foot. But if I feel my partner is present and not in his head, like coming up with his reasons why he's right, then it's so much easier. And I have the responsibility to do that too, but staying present and loving your woman or your partner through whatever's coming up for her is really goes a long way. And then I think for women, something that I coach my clients on and I have to remember for myself is instead of saying, we need to talk to say, there's something that's on my heart. Is it cool if we talk about it now or when is good for you? And then it can feel more like a discussion. That's great. That's a great practical approach. tip. Yeah. Yeah. I love that tip, Violet. That was awesome. Um, I, I would say um, repair conversations, I guess, take um, an openness and willingness to be vulnerable, um, a spirit of listening, um, 
I mean, and really hearing at a deep level, like, you know, opening your heart and listening to them, you know, what, what they're saying, what they're not saying, listening to their body language as you're witnessing them, like really listening and learning, you know, the person that you're talking to. And it's, it's, it's an art. I love that you said that, Mel. It's, it really is an art. It's a dance. You're dancing in this conversation and the canvas is, is blank and you don't know what magic you're going to create or whether it's going to be a, a, a tempest or a storm or the quiet after a storm. I mean, I think there's just a willingness to just let what comes up, come up um, and knowing, you know, or, or hopefully standing in that you both are committed at least to the well-being of each other such that whatever happens, you both will be able to handle it. And, and that sometimes means, you know, not necessarily a positive outcome in terms of, oh, we rode off into the sunset, but it might even mean the most positive outcome that could be is we just accept the other person where they are and know that it is what it is. And we get to choose what it's going to be next. Love that. Am I last? <laughs> I'm always trying to to track if I'm last. Yes, I think you are. <laughs> um, okay, so one of my big takeaways from this is how much it is like a muscle that you can exercise and become more skillful at. I think I used to be a lot more afraid of repair conversations. And now because I've had a number of them, I it's like... I don't know, maybe like if you've gone bungee jumping many times and you're like, Oh God, I remember putting on the harness. Like I feel like you're just as scared or I can only speak for myself. I'm just as nervous going into them. It's never easier, but it does feel more familiar and that feels better to me. So I'm just taking away how much it is like a skill that, that is built and that you build over time rather than a binary, either you're good at this or you're not. Um, And I'm also just taking away the beauty that is um, particularly partnerships, romantic or not, where you do get to know the other person and you do get to know, you know, how to love them better and how they can love you better. And just, there's something really, really cool about that. Like when you, you know, this is going to be a weird analogy, but it's almost like um, when you ride a horse a lot and you get to know that animal and the animal gets to know you, you become this like flawless, like it's almost like you're one when you're, when you're riding, it's this other thing that's created that's bigger than the two of you. And I think that that feels relevant. Like that's a beautiful thing that you, that two people can become a team like that around something that's so yeah, vulnerable in the end. Oh, and then, uh, you know, like advice or whatever. Um, in my, in my experience, the, the best repair conversations I've had with men are men that are more emotionally literate in themselves. So men that are, you know, have done therapy or are in men's groups or are doing the work of personal growth and, and becoming emotionally aware of themselves, I feel safer with them and it has tended to go better. And I think it's because they're more skilled at revealing themselves and, and, and being vulnerable, learning how to actually say certain words. Like I felt excited or I felt, you know, I was afraid you were, weren't going to have sex with me anymore. Like I was, I was afraid of, of feeling left behind or whatever it is like to, to kind of like Jason calls it bottom lining 
like the ability to do that, I think is often an outgrowth of other work that that man is doing in his life. So I'm a strong advocate and support of, of all of those skills being built outside of a relationship. Um, because I think that really helps with repair. Okay. I think we'll wrap there. Did you know I teach a course exactly about sex? It's called Please Her in Bed, and it's based on all of my sex research asking women, what do the men who are best in bed do? I asked over a thousand women, 1,067 to be precise, and then I put together this course. Here are a few responses from men who've taken it. I almost immediately started seeing a woman shortly after the course. She is open and all over me. And we've had sex. Before the course, I hadn't had intercourse in about two years. And I found that a couple of men have said this where they've taken the course and then they've started having sex with a woman. And I think it's because their confidence levels went up because they finally felt like they actually knew what they were doing. Here's another man who was married when he started taking it. I took the course hoping to establish a closer relationship with my wife of over 20 years. Our sex life was always vanilla, but lately it had dwindled to less than once a month and not particularly satisfying for either of us. Since the course, however, our sex life has improved considerably. Now I feel way more confident about my ability to connect with my wife and make the experience satisfying for both of us. I've always loved her, but feel like I'm falling in love with her again after 25 years. If you're interested in hearing more, go to pleaseherinbed.com and the course is listed for $97, but if you're a podcast listener and you use code DEARMEN, that's all one word, DEARMEN, you can get it for $69.